Uh, this week, we're going to be looking at the baptism and the genealogy of Jesus. It's in Luke chapter 3. And I, I'm going to reverse the order of the scripture and look at the geneal genealogy first and then the baptism. I first got interested in my own genealogy, family history, when I was in my early 30s. And uh, I heard that my great-great-great-grandfather, uh, Nathan Ellis, was a justice of the peace in Whittier. He was also a Quaker. And uh, so I made a field trip to the Quaker room at the Whittier College Library uh, and started sifting through these dusty old volumes to find out what I could about our family history. And uh, this was before Ancestry.com or the internet, so I was doing the research the old-fashioned way. And uh, I really hit the mother load in that, in that room because the Quakers kept meticulous records of births, deaths, marriages, baptisms, and their comings and goings from place to place. So I found out that Nathan was the son of Nehemiah, and he was the son of Samuel. Uh, Samuel was a Quaker pioneer who led a group of Quaker families over the mountains from Virginia into Tennessee. And I could follow this migration that went going from Whittier back to Pennsylvania and then across the ocean to Wales where the journey began. And by going to some older relatives, I was able to find some old photos uh, that's Nathan with the white beard uh, with, with his wife, uh, Elizabeth, to the far right. And my great-great-grandfather, Otha Ellis, is behind him. And then this is uh, Nehemiah. He's kind of a, he's my, uh, uh, he was Nathan's father, so uh, he looks like kind of a grizzled character who endured some hard living on the prairie. And then it was, uh, I really had to dig to come up with a photo of Samuel, but uh, I found this one of, <laughs> of <laughs> you know, there, there might be some Viking roots in there too, but so, <laughs> but if you really want to bore somebody at a dinner party, start talking about your family genealogy, okay? Um, like the Quakers, the Jewish people kept meticulous uh, family records, and they placed great importance on it. Uh, these records determined, determined their rights to own land, according to family and tribe. Um, they designated who could uh, serve as a priest, uh, rights of inheritance, and even marriage. And another major reason to uh, have these records is they knew that the coming Messiah would be in the line of King David. He would be a descendant of David. So uh, they were hoping that this coming king would free them from the oppressive rule of Rome. Now, I'm not going to read the whole genealogy that's presented to us in Luke chapter 3, but you, you may be aware that the genealogy in Luke is very different from the one in Matthew. Well, how could Jesus have two different genealogies? There's some, a few theories about why they're different. One distinction you might notice right away is that Matthew's genealogy goes back as far as Abraham. He was writing to a Jewish audience who would have been concerned about the Messiah's link 
to David and Abraham. And Luke, on the other hand, is writing to a Gentile audience, and his gene genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, so uh, showing Jesus' connection to the entire human race. Most conservative Bible scholars take the view that Luke is recording Mary's genealogy and Matthew is recording Joseph's. And after all, each one of us have a, a family branch that goes off from our mother's side and then one from our father's side. And we think of, we think of Jesus as the adopted son of Joseph because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. But as an adopted son, he would have all the inheritance rights. And the remarkable point is that whether you look at the father's side or the mother's side, they both go through King David and Abraham. So Matthew and Luke demonstrate to us that Jesus had the legal right to be considered the Messiah of Israel. And the Jews maintained these records until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So anybody coming after 70 AD claiming to be the Messiah would not have the legal right to be able to prove it. Last week, Jeff gave us a wonderful introduction to John the Baptist, who was a cousin of Jesus, and he was prophesied to be a forerunner of the Messiah, the one who was preparing the way. And John baptized along the Jordan River his baptism was one of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, he was this unusual character who dressed in camel's hair. He ate locusts and wild honey. Jesus called him the greatest man who had ever lived. And while John ate honey, he didn't preach honey. He preached a message that was more like vinegar, a very hard message. We, we might... Some churches might throw him out today. Uh, he railed against the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, calling them a brood of vipers or a bunch of snakes. Uh, he said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, what does that mean to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire? Well, half of that prophetic statement has been realized uh, in that uh, the, baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And every time a new believer is uh, comes into the faith, he, is baptized, he or she is baptized with the Holy Spirit. So the second part of that prophetic statement is waiting to be fulfilled when Jesus returns to the earth to judge the earth with fire. As we're going to see this morning, baptism is extremely important. Jesus started his public ministry with baptism, and he finishes his, earth, his earthly ministry by commanding his disciples to go through all the earth, making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus put an emphasis on baptism, so we should put an emphasis on baptism. The, the climax, after all, of John's ministry was to baptize Jesus. After that, John said, he must increase, 
and I must decrease. And that's one of my prayers, that the power and influence of Jesus would increase in my life, and that the old man, the old, my old way of thinking and doing things would decrease. My grandpa Rod was 85 when he was baptized, and uh, that's him as a younger man, not when he was 85. But uh, at 85, he broke his hip, and then right after that, he, he got the flu, and he'd never been sick in a day in his life, so it kind of scared him, started him to think about his eternal destiny. And uh, all of his 14 brothers and sisters and parents were strong Christians except for him. He was the rebel in the family. He had never darkened the door of a church in his entire adult life. So he, he surprised me by calling me up and saying he wanted to be baptized. And he had this idea in his mind that it, that uh, if he was baptized, he'd have a better shot at getting into heaven, okay? Well, I just had to break it to him that baptism does not save you. It's a powerful symbol and a public declaration of something that's already happened inside your heart. I'm not sure he totally understood all that, but I had the privilege of baptizing him in this uh, tank that's covered over right now. Uh, some years ago. After that, I baptized my grandma Rita when she was in her 80s in this church. And I had the great joy of baptizing, baptizing my two sons, Sam and Nate, uh, a couple of years ago. Now, if you're really saved, you'll want to be bap baptized, but baptism will not save you. Our passage in Luke that describes the ba baptism of Jesus is only two verses long. And uh, they packed a lot into those two verses, but the other three gospel accounts contain some other important details. So I have merged the four accounts together, and I'm going to read that right after I pray to open the scripture. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts now. Grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation as we read your word so that we might know how your goodness and your glory and your wonder to us and in, in, uh, that we might know, Lord, how to uh, follow you even more closely. Pray that your words would inspire us now in Jesus' name. Amen. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. John would have prevented him saying, I need to baptize, be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, consented. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus was praying and was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were being torn open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove coming to rest on him and remaining on him. And a voice from heaven, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And John bore witness, quote, I saw the, whole, the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, 
He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As Jeff taught last week, uh, repentance involves a change of mind, uh, doing a U-turn in your thinking and uh, moving away from sin and moving toward God. Well, if Jesus led a sinless life, why would he need to be baptized? In the passage, you can see John protesting at first, saying that Jesus should be the one to baptize him, not the other way around. But John relents when Jesus tells him it is to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean, to fulfill all righteousness? Jesus was the only one to to perfectly fulfill the law of Moses. And uh, in Numbers chapter 8, in the Mosaic law, it prescribes that before a priest could start his service, in the temple at age 30, he had to go through a ritual cleansing similar to baptism. Priests needed to be cleansed before they could begin their service in the house of the Lord. And whatever God required, Jesus did. There were no sins of commission or omission in his life. Now, he didn't go under the water as a sinner But his purpose was to identify with us as sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus was baptized, he was identifying with us. And when we are baptized, we are identifying with him. By going through baptism, Jesus demonstrates that he is with us in our struggle against sin. I don't know about you, but I still struggle with my carnal, sinful nature. Perhaps you're still wrestling with a habitual sin that has a grip on you. Paul said in Romans 7 that he hated repeating the same sin over and over again. I've been in that place myself. The people coming out to be baptized by John were publicly confessing, admitting that they were sinners and that they needed that cleansing. Now, some of you may have a sin in your life that you hope that nobody discovers. You might be living a double life in the sense that you look one way on the outside And on the inside, there is something that has a grip on you. And you wonder if you can ever be set free. You think if that thing was to be discovered, that uh, it would bring embarrassment or shame. Perhaps you think it puts you outside the reach of God's grace. Well, when you bring that into the light, when you confess to another person, that is the beginning of real freedom. Freedom in Christ. Because of Jesus' baptism, he says, in so many words, I'm taking those sins on myself. While we were still lost 
in our sin, Jesus had his arms wide open to us. And he says, I was baptized with the baptism of sinners because I came to take away the sins of the world. He says, trust in me and decide if my loving kindness isn't better than the delight that you get from that sin. Baptism is a picture of his sacrifice for us. When a person goes under the water, that pictures a death and burial. When they come up out of the water, that pictures a resurrection. It is the likeness of Jesus' death and resurrection. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. One of the things that Luke uniquely points out in his gospel is that Jesus was praying before he was baptized. And love Luke's, Luke loves to show all the times that Jesus is in prayer in his gospel. He tells us that Jesus prayed uh, before he chose the 12 apostles. He prayed at Peter's confession. He prayed uh, at the transfiguration. He prayed in Gethsemane and on the cross. He records that Jesus got up early in the morning while it was still dark and went off to, into the wilderness to be alone and pray. He even spent whole nights in prayer. So if you are one who wakes up in the middle of the night with insomnia, consider that Jesus might be able to use that time with you as an intercessor to, interce to intercede for your loved ones during the watches of the night. Well, if Jesus prayed this much, how much more do we need to pray? And I just love the prayer ministry in this church and those who are faithful uh, six mornings a week in the upper room to pray for us. I would encourage you to join in with the prayer life of this church. Well, why did Jesus pray so much? Uh, prayer at, at its most basic form is conversation. And he liked talking to his heavenly Father. It reflects his affection for the Father. He loves to be with the Father. Now what was happening before the creation of the world? John chapter 12 tells us there was relationship. The Father was loving the Son. And that's why relationship will always be more important than things, created things. From eternity to eternity, there was never a break in that communication, in that communication between Father and Son until that one moment that Jesus was hanging on the cross and all of our sins were placed on him and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My son Sam and I get together uh, once a week for breakfast. And that is one of the highlights of my week, having that father-son time uh, when we can share what's on each other's uh, hearts and minds, process things together. My other son Nate lives in San Diego, so I don't have that regular time. Uh, but when he comes up here, we'll go for a run together or share a meal. And that communication 
between father and son, that communion is something that feeds my soul. In our passage, something very dramatic happened when Jesus was baptized. Heaven was opened so that it could be seen. The veil that obscures the reality of heaven was torn open and it was suddenly made visible to those who were standing along the banks of the Jordan River. This tells me that heaven is not as far away as we might think, but it exists in a different dimension of time and space that our physical eyes can't see unless God removes the veil. And I think, uh, I was talking to Jeff about this earlier, string theory holds that there are at least 11 dimensions of time and space. So for us to imagine those is very difficult. But God, we, we believe, by faith, created all of those dimensions of reality. <clears throat> now, if this wasn't a dramatic enough scene, then the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in bodily form like a dove, coming to rest on him and remaining on him. The dove suggests to us purity, innocence, meekness, gentleness. Now suppose in the scripture it said instead that the Holy Spirit descended on him like a hawk. Okay, that wouldn't seem quite right to our ears, would it? It would connote something different. But the picture here is a dove, the kind of bird that a poor person could bring, who, who, uh, could bring for a sacrifice. And we see that when Jesus walked this earth, he used his power with meekness, like a dove, tenderness, and with love. To add another dimension of drama to this scene, uh, the audible voice of God the Father uh, declares from heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Wouldn't you love to have seen heaven open, the Holy Spirit descend, and then hear that voice? What did that voice sound like? Did it thunder? Did it sound like Charlton Heston or Morgan Freeman? If you've ever had trouble grasping the reality of the Trinity, here you have all three and three and one. The Son being baptized, the Holy Spirit coming down, and then the voice of God, the Father. What a moment. John had been told in advance that the one on whom the Spirit descended and remained on would be the Messiah. So two members of the Trinity are confirming Jesus is the Messiah. Now, some might think that Jesus got the Holy Spirit at this point, at age 30. But Jesus was in full communion with, God, with uh, the Holy Spirit throughout all of eternity. So it wasn't like a non-believer who receives the Holy Spirit for the first time. This was an anointing of special power for extraordinary service as he launched his ministry. And later in the temple in Isaiah 60, he quoted Isaiah 61 when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
And the Lord, because the Lord has anointed me, he says, today this, referring to Isaiah's prophecy, has been fulfilled in your ears. Every believer receives the Holy Spirit when they're born again. But there'll be moments in your life as a Christian when you receive an an additional anointing of power for special service. Now, you don't need that power, particularly if you're sitting around at home on the couch watching House of Cards. But you you may find yourself in a ministry situation, someone unexpectedly comes across your path when you'll need to minister in the power of the Spirit. And God can provide that anointing in varying uh, degrees. I pray for the filling of the Spirit every day. Ask for more of His Spirit. In this passage, we see the Father's great affection for the Son when He says, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Did you know that the Father has the same love for you as he has for his son, Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, we said that he identified with us as sinners. And then he paid the penalty for our sins when he went to the cross and died for us. And when you trust in what he did on the cross and you decide to surrender to him, as your Savior and Lord, there is this great exchange that takes place. All of your sins get placed on Jesus, and God the Father looks at you as if you lived the perfect life of Jesus. This is the wonder of grace and the marvel of His righteousness being credited to us. The Father's love is gifted to you. That may seem too good to be true. We see that the night before Jesus was crucified in John 17, he prayed that the love the Father had for him from all eternity would be in us, his followers. So he wants you to know that the Father doesn't love you any less than he loves his son, Jesus. Some of us have a hard time believing that. We may believe it in our heads, but we have trouble feeling it in our hearts. I can relate to that. Sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect because our earthly fathers, I don't, know how, I don't care how good of a father they were, they loved us imperfectly. Perhaps your earthly father never gave you a blessing. And the the blessing of the father is a powerful thing. Perhaps he never showed you that kind of love. You might have had a distant father or a father who was missing when you needed him most. Ed McGlasson, the pastor of the stadium vineyard in Anaheim, lost his father when he was still in his mother's womb. His father was a test pilot, and he was killed going 400 miles an hour while Ed's mom was eight months pregnant. A big part of Ed's life, before he came to know the Lord, 
was proving himself to the father that he never knew. And that drive to please his father took him all the way to the NFL, where he played for the Rams, the Giants, and the Jets. Well, what is driving you this morning? Are you still seeking the approval of someone who cannot give it to you? Ed sees humanity divided into two groups. He, said, he says, quote, there are those who know the love of the Father, and they are the beloved. And then there are those who don't know that love, and they feel like orphans. He says, quote, Adam and Eve lost access to the Father's house and moved humanity into an orphanage. The headmaster of that orphanage is the father of lies. His plan is to name us by our brokenness and keep us enslaved to things that can destroy us, body and soul. When Ed meets others who have suffered the wounding that comes from a, miss a missing or distant father, he offers them the father's blessing. Now, I had a, a good father, but his father abandoned him when he was seven years old. So he didn't really know how to be a good father. And he just worked. That was, that was what he thought would please the family. So I didn't have that relationship with him. And uh, there were a lot of years when I was, was uh, striving to earn that, that uh that affection from him. The cross behind me demonstrates the enormous cost of the Father's great love for you, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but inherit eternal life. The cross represents the full measure of his extravagant love for you. In the baptism of Jesus, the words, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased, are a preview of words the Father has for you if you have trusted in the sacrifice of his son. You are his beloved, and he delights in you. I'm going to ask you to stand now and ask the ministry team to come up and the elders, if there are any elders here. And uh, if you have never decided to follow Jesus, this would be a great moment to do that, Thanksgiving week. I can assure you, your, your heart will be full of thanksgiving if you make that decision to surrender to him as your Savior and Lord. So I want to invite anybody up who wants to make that decision to follow Jesus. And I also want to invite up anyone who's never felt the Father's blessing. Your father was missing or absent, um, never gave you that blessing of love. So we're going to have some people up here to pray for you who can offer you the Father's blessing. Well, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the great 
sacrifice that Jesus showed us by identifying with us as sinners, by willing to be willing to endure the cross in, in obedience to his Father's will, and all that that means to us, that we have inherited that extravagant love. Pray now that we go remembering that love and showing it to others. In Jesus' name, amen.